It's very hard to understand. It is not a well-written law. In this episode. They're huge landmark cases. I mean, what happens over the next few months can have a serious impact on how courts look at cases like this in the future. Part two of how privacy is used as a weapon in the most sensitive Students of cases. Students held up signs that read no in silent protest. Fire the abusers. It is a law that, that serves the interests of the schools, even though it really should solely be a protection of a student's interest. I think they know that there's some material in there that they don't want people to be seeing. From the University of Florida's Breckner Center for Freedom of Information, I'm Sarah Gannum, and you're listening to an episode of Why Don't We Know, the podcast that dives deep into data and comes out with real stories. Two court cases, which have been meandering through the system for more than four years now, are challenging a common claim that universities cannot share the outcomes or punishments given in sexual misconduct investigations, because doing so would violate a federal student privacy law called FERPA. You hear FERPA thrown around all the time in the world of education. FERPA covers this. FERPA protects that. Can't tell you because of FERPA. Now in session, parents of new freshman students may not realize that they no longer have access to their child's grades. Once a student goes to college, they not only have more freedom than they had before, but they also have more privacy rights. Thanks to FERPA. FERPA is shorthand for the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act, and it was actually meant to make sure that students and parents could have access to their own records so that school administrators couldn't keep things from them. And later, that morphed into a privacy act. And the history of the law is something that we're going to get into more next episode. But for now, what you need to know is that FERPA does not always protect the things that schools claim it protects. In fact, more and more, we are seeing brazen examples of universities using FERPA as a shield to instead hide information that might make them look bad. That's what's happening here in these three court cases. One at the University of Texas at Austin, another at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a third at the University of Kentucky. The universities are using FERPA as a reason not to share outcomes of Title IX cases, claiming that someone could potentially reverse engineer the identities of the student involved by seeing the punishments that are handed out. These cases could have a nationwide ripple effect. Here's Why Don't We Know reporter Mariana Fiello, again with a recap. All of these cases originated with reporters filing basic open records requests, asking for the punishments handed down in sexual assault and harassment cases. But the universities continue to fight these cases by arguing that sharing outcomes is a violation of student privacy under federal law. In all three cases, the courts so far have sided with the journalists, saying FERPA does not apply. But in Kentucky, the university appealed to the state Supreme Court. In Texas, the university is planning to appeal. And in North Carolina, a final ruling was handed down by the state's highest court. But the university officials are now petitioning the United States Supreme Court to take on the case. UNC has said in legal documents that it's a matter of principle. Even though the UNC case reached the state Supreme Court and they lost, they had to release the outcomes. They're still fighting it? They're claiming privacy is more important than public disclosure. Here's the thing. There are ways to protect privacy without operating in complete darkness. Police and the courts, they do this all the time. 
If you walk into the courthouse and you ask for a police report that has a victim's name on it, or an informant's name on it, or even just a driver's license number, you will still get the report. The confidential information will simply be redacted. But when it comes to universities, this is not a common practice. And so it is not guaranteed that there is a check and balance to make sure that things are being handled correctly. For example, are there repeat offenders who remain on campus? What are the punishments that are being given to the people who are found responsible? In the case of the University of Texas, Austin, and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, the FERPA argument is about the privacy of the students who are accused. But at the University of Kentucky, using FERPA is even more mind-boggling because that case is about professors and staff members who are accused of sexual harassment. They don't have FERPA rights. And so instead, the university is bending FERPA to say that victims' names could somehow be ascertained by sharing the punishments in those cases. When we sought outcomes from schools around the country for our data project, we got a few similar responses. The University of Massachusetts told us that disclosing this information is an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy. In California, State Pominos has a strong public interest served by not disclosing the complaints. Far outweighs the public interest and in disclosure. As part of the lawsuit at Kentucky, the university is really waving the victim flag, trying to make this case that they are standing with survivors. They even got a few of them to write statements on behalf of the university. UNC did this too, saying that releasing punishments could undermine the fragile trust that the university has built to encourage reporting of sexual violence. Now to the contrary, the journalists are saying that reporting by victims actually increased exponentially after journalists began writing about the frequency of sexual assaults and making people aware there were mechanisms for recourse. There are people on both sides of that argument of whether disclosing outcomes of cases would discourage or encourage victims in coming forward. But you know what definitely does not encourage victims to come forward? when cases are not taken seriously. When, say for example, someone is found responsible for sexual misconduct, but not adequately punished. Mary described this last episode, what she saw from some of the data that she got back. Well, for example, when I was working on the open records request for this episode, I noticed that several times the punishment for a student who was found responsible for a sexual assault was to write an essay about how sorry they were, and that was it. At UNC Chapel Hill, when the state's highest court ruled in favor of the journalists, UNC was forced to hand over outcomes to the student newspaper, The Daily Tar Heel. And you know what those outcomes showed? Of 15 cases where someone was found responsible for sexual misconduct, there were only two cases where they were subsequently expelled. Two cases. Maybe that's why UNC fought so hard for four years to keep those outcomes secret. Also, I want to note that I looked at those outcomes that were finally published by the student newspaper as a result of the court ruling to see if there was any merit to this argument that you could somehow reverse engineer identities. Those outcomes did not show anything close to identifiable information. To give you an example, one line of the chart simply says, Case A, suspension, yes. That's it. That's the information that they say may lead someone to figure out who was involved. 
And even if you somehow could figure it out, in 1991, Congress addressed this very issue, recognizing that there are times when it is a public safety concern and the punishment for a student found responsible for a violent crime may be disclosed. That's the exact language of the law, may disclose. Essentially, a school could take out a billboard if they wanted to, because the 1991 amendment says that in those public safety instances, the name, the charge, and the punishment may be given out. But the universities argued in court that may disclose also means may not disclose. They read the law the opposite way, that Congress was giving them permission to keep it secret. In all three cases, the courts did not agree. There are plenty of examples where universities have opted out of warning the community about a public safety threat. Maybe one of the worst examples of this happened at Oklahoma State in 2012, when an officer at a fraternity was found to be responsible for serial molestation of drunk pledges. The university found him responsible and gave him a two-year suspension, but never notified the police about the case findings, wrongly believing that FERPA prevented them from telling authorities. So this guy, who was found to be molesting people, was allowed to stay in the community with no police investigation, all because of a misuse of FERPA. And instances like that are why not all victims and advocates feel that absolute secrecy works in their favor. Unlike what you may have seen on Law & Order SVU, justice is rare for victims of gender violence. Laura Dunn, for example. Institutions have historically swept gender violence under the rug Dunn was a freshman at the University of Wisconsin when she was raped by two members of the crew team. She's been really open about this over the years. Here she is talking about how the law fails victims of gender violence during a TED Talk. Instead of going by institution by institution, fighting for reform, it's time to go to the Constitution. Dunn is now one of the nation's leading attorneys fighting for victims of campus sexual assault. But before she helped anyone else, she was forced to become her own advocate at the University of Wisconsin. So at the time, the University of Wisconsin had a system where if you went to the dean of students office, the first dean that you talk to automatically is assigned as your quote unquote advocate. I don't think that is a sincere title because to me, an advocate advances the interests of the person they are advocating for uh, above and beyond all others and in fact does not have a different interest. And this was a dean um, who I believe now is the Title IX coordinator at the University of Wisconsin, so still present. And she was very supportive and very kind, but she was not an advocate. Dunn told me how delays in her case allowed both men to graduate before the system in place could work. When she finally pushed for a result, the school said that, quote unquote, consent was moot, that both parties were drinking and therefore they couldn't make a determination about who was responsible. And um, that's an absurd finding for numerous reasons. One, uh, you know a sexual assault has occurred because of consent. It's never moot. It's never irrelevant. It's always the most relevant point. And just because both parties are drinking doesn't mean one isn't a perpetrator and another isn't the victim. So I I was very furious with that outcome. But secrecy kept Dunn, the alleged victim in the case, from getting a copy of the report. That outcome was read to me from the computer screen of my quote-unquote advocate, the dean of students. And I was never given a copy. I was never able to see the words for myself. 
I was allowed, with the assistance of the dean, she typed up my response, which was outrage. So I still have my response to that outcome to show that it, it was, in fact, read to me. But um, they never released the actual outcome either to myself or any journalist who tried to seek it afterwards. And they have intentionally hidden that because I do believe I would have had a very interesting lawsuit had I had that document. Her case is a clear example of secrecy protecting the institution, not the alleged victim. So there is that privacy interest. It's valid. It's important. But it always has to be measured against the interest of the public to ensure accountability. Schools have data. One would hope they're using it towards some type of prevention or resources and budget. Um, but many of them uh, may, may have that only for internal purposes. I know one school in the South um, who I heard from local advocates uh, at the campus level and even from some professors who worked for the school had a 40% undergraduate sexual assault rate for students. That is off the charts. Um, that is the highest range I have heard. And uh, that was even after aggregating graduate programs in. And a lot of that is likely explained not just by the close uh, relationship between the campus and the city and the reputation of the city, but also the fact that uh, over 50% of their students are involved in Greek life, which is a strong influence. So that is information that a school has, but may not want anyone else to know because that would obviously hurt their admissions numbers. Um, that would obviously create a lot of outrage and demand for change, all of which I think are in the public's interest to know and, and actually you know seek change for. But a lot of schools, if they can keep it under wraps, if they can do it privately, if they can have a few years to fix a problem they should fix overnight, that's what they're going to do. I asked Laura Dunn about FERPA and whether she thinks it's being manipulated and misused to shield the outcomes of these kinds of cases. I think anyone who works closely with my advocacy or even has been trained by me about uh, the federal laws that apply know my, my deep uh, annoyance, <laughs> for lack of a better word, at FERPA. It is a law that was meant to protect students so that they weren't... Um, having their information disseminated without their knowledge or for improper purposes. And it was written so poorly. It is one of the worst written laws of, of history, from what I can tell. Um, and it instead has only to this date uh, been used, especially on this issue of campus sexual sh assault, to shield institutions. There's so many loopholes um, where there's permission to disclose, but not a requirement to disclose. And the schools obviously are not going to exercise their judgment in a way that adversely affects their interest. So no matter what is in the student's interest, which should be the only governing factor, um, the law has been written in so many ways uh, to allow schools to exploit it. Dunn is referencing the congressional amendment that allows schools to disclose FERPA information that pertains to public safety. This came up recently at the University of Wisconsin, the same school where Dunn had such a horrible experience as a survivor. The university found a botany professor had engaged in sexual harassment, but refused to release any information about what the investigation found. The local newspaper was simply asking for data, the number of accusers, the time frame of the harassment. And the university said, sorry, student privacy prohibits us from telling you that. It made me wonder, what are these schools so afraid of? So I asked the Department of Education, has anyone ever punished a school for warning its students or the public about a predator? The answer was no, never, not once. People are scared to death of losing their federal funding from the Office of Civil Rights under Title IX. It has never happened once. 
So yes, the the quote unquote big stick of the federal government, I think everyone knows, has never been wielded. Do the schools, in your experience, do the right thing when it is in the interest of public safety? Do they release information that the public should know? For example, a professor who has repeatedly been accused uh, in the outcome of cases where there are multiple victims involved? Uh, In my experience, the fundamental flaw for all congressional efforts to force universities to do the right thing is this ongoing belief that schools will somehow magically do the right thing. Everyone wants to believe that those who educate us and are in charge of protecting our students will put public safety in the students first. And that is nothing short of naive. I think anyone who does litigation has has seen the underbelly. Um, These institutions of education, more so today than ever before, are corporate entities out for profit, and their primary um, purpose is perpetuation of their own institution at any cost, um, including student safety and student well-being. So I think um, in my experience and in many cases, uh, schools use FERPA as a shield. They try to prevent accountability for their actions, and they certainly are not using even the discretion allowed to them around campus safety to ensure uh, the public interest. Has this always been your opinion about privacy in these cases? I mean, has it evolved over years or changed your view of FERPA? I think the more I do this work, the stronger the viewpoint becomes. You know, just a step back before going specifically to FERPA, when I think about Title IX violations, which is the law that holds schools responsible for addressing reports of sexual misconduct, it's not always malintention. You know, some of it is people are not well trained or they thought they were doing the right thing in the context of a lack of training and guidelines and procedures. So not everything's malicious, but when it comes to FERPA, I do think it is intent. There are absolutely times where schools absolutely know what the law says and what they could do, and they intentionally choose not to. Attorney Brett Sokolow, the university Title IX trainer who we heard from last episode, he thinks it's more likely that schools are confused by the messiness of FERPA. So it's, it's, it's very confusing, and I think what they were trying to do was to, to keep a lid on the harm uh, that would be caused to the parties if things were disseminated publicly. Last episode, Sokolow told us that politics is muddying the water, creating a political football out of Title IX. He told me that it's also part of the reason that FERPA is so messed up. Well, Title IX keeps being revised and updated, FERPA is really static. And it needs some serious updating to keep pace even with, with Title IX, and it's not. So you have these two inherently conflicting laws uh, on a lot of different points, and you can tell in the regs, uh, the OCR was trying to make pace with the, the FERPA folks and, and, and give them a lot of uh, deference. But at the end of the day, Title IX still is countermanding some of the, the requirements under under FERPA. So you know, I think that some, some schools use this as an excuse to overprotect information. Um, but you know, that, that relates to sharing with the parties, not just with the public. All over the map, just like the data we collected shows. There does have to be a balancing act, and I I don't want survivors to sacrifice all their privacy, and that's why compromises around forcing schools to provide data would be helpful. 
How many professors are being reported every year? How many of them are being removed? How many of them are even found responsible in the first place? Um, those are things that may preserve privacy, but allow some accountability. And there has to be that balance. Dunn told me hiding outcomes is not the only way that universities use FERPA to protect themselves. More and more, she is seeing FERPA being used as a weapon against the very people it's intended to protect. I've actually seen uh, university registrars start lying to students about what FERPA says. I've had one school say, well, you're no longer a student, so you're going to have to subpoena your own records. That's not true. Unfortunately, they, they are even willing to lie to students about their rights. Lie to students about their rights. I'm not surprised by much these days, but this one got me. It was shockingly easy to find examples where students who reported that they were the victim of sexual misconduct were also told by the university that they could not get copies of their own education record. That flies in the face of FERPA, which was designed for the very purpose of making sure that students could see their own records. And they have told me I can't get them because the statute of limitations are not up. This is attorney-client privilege. I couldn't save it, um, couldn't print it. They said that there were no documents that they could get me. I spoke to four women. All of them filed complaints of sexual misconduct to the Title IX office at their university. All of them subsequently requested their own record because they believe those Title IX investigations were mishandled. All of them were given a hard time by their university, and three of four of them still have not received their own records. The one who did receive her records was told that she had to come into the FERPA office in person after she had graduated and could view them but could not make copies and could not bring anyone with her to view it. It was difficult because I live six hours away. There really was no way for me to feasibly go to the school to view the documents, and then more than that, I wouldn't be able to use them. Yeah, I, I don't even think I would be allowed to take notes in person, so it would have required me to memorize it. In this case, Laura Dunn is the woman's attorney, and so Dunn filed a complaint with the Department of Education. They, almost immediately after the, uh, the complaint was sent in, they notified me that they would be able to give me an electronic-only, read-only copy that would allow me to view it on my computer, but still would not allow me to share it with my lawyer because there would be no way for me to actually pull the documents or share the documents because it was read-only. So read-only, I think, can mean a lot of different things. Do you mean by read-only, like, you could not print, you could not save a copy, you couldn't, could you, I mean, is there any way feasibly, like, could you take screenshots? I mean, like, what were the limitations on this document specifically? Yeah, I couldn't save it, um, couldn't alter it in any way, couldn't print it. Um, I guess, hypothetically, I could take a screenshot of every page, um, but like I said, the entire document, I believe, is close to 6,000 pages. So I really wasn't sure that that was a feasible way for me to actually uh, save it. They said it's for your eyes only, read only. Um, you can't save or, or uh, distribute it in any way. I mean, that's pretty surprising since it's your record that you can't decide if someone else can see it. Yeah, especially a lawyer. 
And was there any other limitation on this document, like how long you have possession of it? Yes. So the other really difficult constraint is that I only have access to it for two weeks at a time, um, which means that I completely lose access to the file, which was uploaded to a file sharing service. Um, I completely lost access to it after that time period. To be clear, FERPA does not give students the right to copies of their own records. What it gives them is the right to come into the office and inspect those records. And so some are going another route, asking for their own education record through open records requests. This, too, can be problematic. For one, students at private universities don't have this option to use open records laws. And the second reason is that universities manipulate open records laws to keep documents out of reach. The other three women who I spoke to for this episode, they do attend public universities, and they tried to get copies of their records through open records laws unsuccessfully. I was asking for just everything that had to do with me personally and my case. That's Kendall Ware. She's a student at the University of Vermont. They didn't um, meet the like window of time to re- actually respond. The documents she sought fit squarely into the category of the kinds of records that students should be able to see. It wasn't anybody else's. It was just my case and any communication between athletic directors, basketball coaches, and the Title IX office regarding me in that case. But the university responded by saying, It was an email that was just like, no, this is attorney-client privilege. We're not going to release any of these records to you. And then at the bottom, there was some small thing that just said, because this is somewhat pertinent to you, we'll think about it for 45 days and then possibly release it to you. But we're not going to commit to that. I haven't received anything else from that office since I sent that email. Two other students at Louisiana State University told me that they also had trouble getting their own records. When I submitted the FOIA request for the Title IX records only, she personally, her name is Jenny Stewart, she uh, emailed me and she said, I received information that you'd filed a public records request for Title IX records. Since you're requesting your own records, you have access to your own student records. That's Abigail Owens. She shared with me LSU's FERPA release form, a document created by LSU for this very purpose. It shows that she authorized her attorney to see her records. Did you get those documents? Never. Like, they said that there were no documents that they could give me. Another LSU student, Samantha Brennan, told me that she couldn't even get the police report that she herself filed after she alleged that she was sexually assaulted. I went and made a police report after the incident with LSU PD. And so the first step was trying to get that report. And so that's what I've been trying to do. The police report that you filed. Yeah, since August. She told me the records officer at LSU. She was like, oh, I'm having trouble finding it. So let me call you back. Um, I called multiple times a day. She just gave me a huge runaround. And it was only after, I mean, weeks of runaround. And they were ignoring my calls. I have a Minnesota area code. And I would call twice a day, no answer. And so finally, I used my fiance's phone number, who's got a California area code. She picked up on the first dial. So I knew she was purposely ignoring me, screening her calls. So she was really like blindsided with that phone call. And so that day, I did get an initial report. All it said was like two sentences of somebody had taken a picture of me without my consent, but that was not even close to the full thing. 
If you went to college, you know that there is an emotional relationship that many students have with the schools they attend. There is a pride in the institution that you are a part of, and an assumption that the feeling is mutual, that the school is looking out for you, protecting you, caring about you, the same way that you care about it. I asked these women, when we sign up for college, I guess there's like sort of this unspoken rule that they're going to look out for us and protect us and like kind of be there for us during these four years of growing and learning and becoming adults. And I just wonder if you guys feel like that, that happened. For me, I feel like I was failed in like more ways than just this one by like my institution. Like I didn't feel like valued as a human being for a second that I was there. This was like an additional kick in the teeth. Like, okay, come on. Like, not only did you, fa you, you failed me once and now like, it's just going to continue happening. Am I overstating that? No, not at all. Not for me at least. Yeah, I agree with that. And to answer your question, one thing that I really struggle with is UVM, University of Vermont presents itself as such a liberal progressive school. So when I was going forward with reporting this, I, I had my doubts just in general about the whole process, but I felt better knowing it was UVM and it's this liberal place where people, students are supported and going through this process has really just shown me that it's all a facade and it's, it's not what it's actually like. What Kendall Ware is saying is not just about the University of Vermont. I have heard that sentiment over the years from students at universities far and wide, north, south, east, and west, big and small, liberal, conservative, and seemingly neutral. Too often, when university officials are confronted with a choice to reflect inward or to blame outward, they choose to blame outward. As Kendall Ware put it, From Reading the email, what it sounded like was because they wanted to protect themselves and to make sure that the things that they did incorrectly didn't like fall into the wrong hands, I guess, and that it didn't publicly embarrass them and that like I didn't have access to the things that they did wrong, if that makes sense. You felt like they didn't want you to see what was going on behind the scenes of your own case? Yes, I'm, like, I know there's been communication just with my case personally, back and forth between the Title IX office and the athletic office. So I felt like they did not want that to be seen and to get, to be in my possession. Unfortunately, this is exactly how I expected them to respond based off of how they handled my case. I did not expect them to actually release my records to me. I kind of was, just wasn't surprised, if that makes sense. Like just, they met my expectations. I feel I deserve to know what my athletic administration as a student athlete myself is saying about me um, and how the communication between the athletic department and the Title IX office operated. I deserve to know what is being said about me and other students have that right as well too. Attorney Karen Trzowski told me that these cases, keeping students from their own records, they are no longer unusual. I started seeing it Back in 2018, really, was when I really started thinking, something isn't right here. And my, my thought process back then has been reinforced, as I see it in so many different universities. I think it's gotten worse because of the focus on 
addressing sexual assault and violence in the in the universities and they're trying to protect themselves you mean because more journalists are writing stories more survivors are speaking and speaking more freely you think the universities are circling the wagons yes exactly because it's only been in the last three four five years that I, I you know we've seen this uptick in in women and and men coming forward and saying this happened to me and addressing it and pushing it and I think circling the wagons is a good way to phrase it they're being very careful about what they disclose and and trying not to have to disclose anything if they don't have to from a legal perspective are they breaking any laws by not sharing these documents with survivors? I would say yes. I see violations and it's it's kind of a simple explanation. You have a right to your own records and it should not be so difficult to get them. They make it so difficult to the point that people are scared to ask. I mean, FERPA was created for this exact reason, to give students the access to their records. Exactly. But they, they're still making it so difficult. And I, I've seen it personally myself when I go with to I've had clients that have tried to get their records and couldn't. And I would actually go with them to request the records so that I could see what was happening. What, what happened when you did that? What did what what can you give me some examples of what happened? Sure. Um, I went with two clients to a university here in Michigan to request records from the counseling department and the uh, sexual assault advocacy center in, in the university. Went to request records. Well, why do you want them? And we would explain uh, that's really none of your concern why we want them. As soon as they would find out that there was an athlete involved in the case, all of a sudden the attitude completely changed. And at one one time that I was with a client, we were actually like taken in a back room to meet with the quote unquote director so that she could talk to us about why we wanted the records. It wow. was very it was very intimidating. And I can't imagine how it would have been for my client if I hadn't been with her. You know, this is someone that's been sexually assaulted and just wants their counseling records. And I, I felt like we were being interrogated. And eventually we were told, well, we can give you your records, but first we have to get a release or whatever consent from the general counsel's office. So we knew that the records went over the general counsel's office. Is we, that actually right? I mean, do they actually, can they keep you, keep a student from their own records for that reason? That's a very good question. I don't think so. They've never really given me an explanation as to why that took place. And when I've, I've asked them about it, like, okay, so what if I, uh, a student has a broken ankle and they go to the student, uh, physician or whatever and and their ankles treated and then they need surgery later and they need those records sent to their orthopedic surgeon are those records sent over to the general counsel's office before they're released i don't think so it's only when it involves a sexual assault and what i've seen if it involves an athlete or some other prominent person 
that it goes to the general counsel's office. Other attorneys I spoke to, they echoed this, that often they have to resort to a subpoena to get records on behalf of their clients. Well, I'm just going to say that's absurd. You know, if a student wants their own records and they don't have the capability to sue for whatever reason, they're not going to get their records. You know, that, that, yeah, that's very frustrating. And I have run into that. And even when they do have the means to strong-arm universities through the power of the courts, the FERPA record is suspiciously light, meaning it doesn't include everything you think it might include. What do I mean by that? Well, if a journalist asks for surveillance footage, emails, internal reports, memos, we often get the FERPA answer. But when a student asks for his or her own FERPA record, often none of that stuff is in there. Emails are not necessarily considered part of someone's academic record or their, their jacket, as they say. That, that may not necessarily be a typical thing that would be in there. Is that um, what they talk about, the jacket? Can you sometimes, sometimes you'll hear them say it's a student's jacket, like their file. You ask me what's typically in their file. In my experience, uh, if we ask for an academic record, we get their transcript and that's pretty much it. Don't get anything else. We have to clarify if there's other things that we want that's outside of their academic record, like emails, things like that. The one student who I spoke to who did eventually get her record, she told me, I was definitely expecting there to be a lot more material, and I honestly feel like there is a lot more out there that they just did not include. What was in your FERPA record? I mean, generally speaking, what kinds of documents were in there? Despite being over 6,000 pages, it really wasn't anything new, and it really wasn't very far-reaching. Like I said, they had my initial Common App and essays and things like that that I had submitted with no discussion. There was no emails related to that or anything like that. Uh, There were a couple hundred pages that related to, like I said, my financial aid discussion, which mostly included just emails um, back and forth between me and the financial aid office as I was negotiating loans and things like that, keeping them updated. And then finally, the majority of it actually was just all the documents related to Title IX. And so it was only the evidence that I'd already seen and any emails that I had back and forth with the Title IX office, um, which of course I already had. So there was nothing in there that was mentioning me without actually being directed towards me. What did you expect? What were you guys hoping to get when you asked for your FERPA record? I personally thought that they were obligated to provide anything that mentioned me, any discussion. Um, So I was expecting to see at least something, you know, from the hearing panelists, any sort of discussion. I don't know if I, I would assume this would be available as like discussions on the back end by the investigators who were going through the case because they made some interesting decisions. Like they had closed the, uh, the investigation then decided to reopen it. So I was expecting to see things along those lines of why they decided to reopen it, how they decided that they needed to interview more witnesses and things like that. I was expecting to see discussion around scheduling the hearing because I felt like that was directly related to me because um, they basically went ahead and scheduled the hearing, uh, the Title IX hearing, without really taking my dates into account. In fact, I don't think I had even sent them what dates I was available. So that required me to take off work and all those things. Um, so I was expecting to see something related to that. I was expecting to see just any sort of email that really mentioned me. Um, Another thing that I know had been sent was that 
because me and the accused in the case were in the same class, they had told me that they had communicated to the professor of that class that there was an ongoing, you know, Title IX altercation between two students. I don't know if that was actually ever sent um, because the professor never reached out to me and never really acknowledged that that was ongoing. But I do, I am curious if that information was ever actually sent to him. This is going to sound kind of out there, but were there any mentions of anything related to surveillance photos or video of you? Um, No, that was something that I had also sort of expected to see, but there was nothing. There was no record. Like, for example, I lived on campus um, and I know that they have access to see like how many times you swipe in and out of your building and like and at what times I was expecting to see something along those lines. Um, But I didn't see anything related to surveillance or my movements or my meal plan, anything like that. So just to go back to what an academic record is, though, like the intent of the law was to allow them to see communications between faculty and staff at a school. I don't disagree with that at all. I'm just saying typically if there's emails going back and forth about a student, I don't typically see that they put those in the student's academic record. I I don't see that. I'm not saying that they don't belong there. I think they do, but I don't think that that's a standard practice. Yeah, this seems to be like a a thread throughout our reporting in higher ed, which is just this immediate reaction to everything is secrecy, you know, especially at public universities, which is sort of baffling um, because it seems to go against their own mission. But, you know, their, their default is to be secret. Yes. Even when they're not hiding something. Like, even if there's nothing to hide, even if they did nothing wrong, they just default to secrecy. That That is a good way of putting it. And that's my feeling exactly, is that is a default. We we can't let anything out. We have to keep it in inside. You know, I mean, for, for all practical purposes, I guess we understand why they think that way, but um, they're not allowed to think that way. That's wrong. And the people that are suffering for it are, are students. You know, 18, 19, 20-year-old kids that just want their records and, you know, they, they get the runaround. I, I, I have clients call me and tell me I'm afraid to ask for my records because I know what happened to so-and-so when they asked for their records. I don't want to deal with that. And that it's not the way that it should be. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite, yes. There are so many FERPA horror stories that it is nearly impossible to get into all of the headlines that have emerged about its abuse. In fact, I could have made a FERPA is broken argument in many of our previous episodes, and some of the future ones too. Hazing, concussions, weapons brought to campus. In all of those, we saw instances where schools denied us information, wrongly citing FERPA. But I want to make the point that this is not uncommon. It's quite the opposite. In Brockton, New York, school officials refused to release surveillance footage of a game where a 16-year-old football player died, citing FERPA. Video could give answers about how a Lowndes County Georgia teen died in his high school gym, but school officials are keeping State it from his claims family. they can't say anything about an employee arrested Details for of hazing at the University of Kansas. action against University of Michigan Student government campaign contribution records in the name the of the student's attorney are being withheld by the Ohio Department of About the hiring about of graduate students at East Tennessee how many State. students were banned from graduation at Orlando High School. Citing FERPA. Citing FERPA. Citing FERPA. Citing FERPA. Citing FERPA. Citing FERPA. 
Omaha schools won't say what discipline bullies a serial rapist who was at the large Illinois in the college community. won't even say where the rapes happened. Say whether a convicted rapist is still at say the school. Whether or three not. rapes resulted in delays sending out alert about rape. Waited a month to inform the public about an on campus of raping a student until after she was later murdered. Citing privacy. Citing FERPA. Citing a federal student's privacy act known as FERPA. In one example, we found a judge who sanctioned Northern Kentucky University for frivolously citing FERPA to instruct coaches not to answer questions at a deposition in a sexual assault case. The school officials tried to argue that questions about when the coaches learned about the alleged assault and what they did about it are, quote, FERPA information. The judge found that argument to be frivolous and sanctioned them, ordering the coaches to talk. We have spent almost 10 episodes focused solely on higher education. We're now going to switch gears and spend some time examining data deserts and secrecy at K-12 institutions. The misuse of FERPA does a lot of damage at that level too. Maybe one of the most egregious cases ever documented happened at an elementary school in Arkansas in 2015. Why don't we know reporter Camille Respis talked to the mother in that case? It was the scariest day of my life. (laughs) Brooke Moore is a bakery owner in Cedarville, Arkansas, where she lives with her husband and three kids. Do you just want an assortment of four? Like four gourmets? That's where she was when I reached her on the phone. And she told me how the misuse of FERPA almost cost her son his life. We were at a school event. It was a, um, like, back-to-school bash slash almost like a scrimmage game. They played a few rounds of offense and defense against each other, the, the high school and junior high football teams did. And my oldest son at the time was on the junior high football team, so that's why we were there that night. While Moore's older son was playing football, her younger son, Zach, was at the adjacent playground with his friends. There was a, a park bench leaned up against a fence, and Zach had ran up to the park bench and tried to do a pull-up on the bench, and when he did that, it fell over on the top of him, and that's when the that that's where the accident happened. Zach was just seven years old at the time, weighing about seventy pounds. A local family says they're trying to piece together what happened after their son was badly hurt on a playground. His injuries were so severe, skull fractures and brain swelling. He would spend two months in the hospital. The seven-year-old Zach Moore's family says his life changed when he was playing on a playground with other children at Cedarville Elementary. But doctors didn't immediately know what happened. And in trying to properly diagnose Zach's injuries, they asked the Moores to get the school surveillance video of the playground to figure out what exactly happened. Now, his parents say they're left wondering how this all happened. It's hard to get the facts straight because we don't have all the facts. The school district took the stance that the video surveillance was protected by FERPA since other children were in the video. We needed that information the first couple of days of his accident because we didn't know, the doctors really didn't know what all injuries he had, especially the first 24 hours. Because when Zach was on the playground, he had a few of his friends up there with him and whenever the bench fell on his head, A few of his friends actually lifted up the bench just enough and moved it down on his chest area. So when, you know, the ambulance got there, when we got into the hospital, at first everybody thought it was more of a chest injury. 
you know, they didn't know if he could breathe. They didn't, I mean, he was having trouble breathing anyway. He had low pulse. He had to be intubated. So at first, they thought the injuries were more in the chest area just because of where the bench was actually laying when adults actually got up to the playground to see to see him. Um, it wasn't until later, later on when they started doing some MRIs and other stuff that they realized he had a brain injury also, but they were still also trying to find out if he had other injuries in the chest area. And we were trying to get the video released so that we could see what happened so that the doctors would know what type of treatment he needed initially. While their seven-year-old son lay in a coma in the hospital, Brooke and her husband had to hire an attorney and file a lawsuit against the Cedarville Public Schools to try to get the information they needed to help Zach recover. A judge ordered the district to release the video after the family filed a Freedom of Information request lawsuit. Now they have video of what happened to cause those injuries. Eventually, one full month after his injury, a judge ruled in the Moore's favor and the school released the video. Zach was out of his medically induced coma by then and was beginning to relearn basic things like walking, talking, eating, basic motor function. Here's a clip of a video the Moors posted to Facebook during his recovery. Come on, show me. Good job. <laughs> Do it. Nice job, buddy. He done it. Good job, Zachary. Brooke and her husband were learning something too. It was very, very hurtful because we've always been involved in a lot of things in our community and in our school district. It just brought a lot of unanswered questions to us that really should have never been there. We've spent a lot of time talking about the misuse of FERPA, but we thought that we should probably also take a step back and look at what the law intended to do. I don't believe anyone uh, who labored so long and so hard would say this is a perfect piece of legislation. But I think it's a good law. That's next time on Why Don't We Know. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, with additional reporting by Camille Respis and Mariana Fiello. The associate producer is Tori Whitten. This episode was edited by Amy Fu and James Sullivan. Music for this episode was composed by Daniel Townsend. Audio mixing was done by James Sullivan. The executive producer is Frank Lamonti. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. A special thanks to the Hearst Family Foundation for providing the grant money that supported this reporting. For more information, please visit our website at www.whydontweknow.org.